Welcome to Inside the Road, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and I'm excited to be speaking to Peter Cooper. Today, in this episode, the Chief Investment Officer and Founder and Portfolio Manager of Cooper Investors that manage $12 billion in assets. Peter's been doing that for the last 20 years, and we speak to him about what the big influences in his career have been, including his time at State Super, BMP, and running Australian equities for Merrill Lynch. We also touch on his fortuitous two-hour meeting with worldwide investment leader Charlie Munger. He talks about his secret weapon in storing and having knowledge in the areas that can't be transferred in ones and zeros. I'd also like to quickly call out Joshua Clark, my son, who edits and publishes the podcast. Thanks, Josh, as well as Tom O'Reilly, who works with me at Coda as an associate, who also helps putting together the podcast and producing it. Thank you very much. I've also got an announcement to make in terms of a special event that we're going to be running on the 25th of August in Sydney. Subject to COVID, we're going to record a live episode to mark the 100th episode of the podcast. If you'd like to be along in that live audience and come along to that recording, please email us at hello at insidetherope.com.au. I'd also like to point out that this podcast isn't designed to be, nor is it specific advice. People should read the PDS, information memorandums, and also seek advice prior to any investments, and also listen to the disclaimer at the back of the podcast. Hope you enjoyed the podcast as much as I did. Thank you. Peter Cooper, welcome to Inside the Rope. Thanks, David. Peter, well, thanks for joining us. Um, I'm really excited to have you uh, join the podcast. It's been a while in the planning, and I know over that time uh, when your name first came across the bows, it wasn't something I knew a lot about, but a hell of a lot of people in the industry, far smarter than me, were actually very excited about you. So I'm really looking forward to this episode. Perhaps you could kick us off by um, letting our listeners know who you are, and, and sort of what your background is, please. David, um, so my name's Peter Cooper and started Cooper Investors about 20 years ago, but in the preceding uh, 12 years before that, I, I had a number of jobs in investment management. I actually started in Sydney at the State Super Board in New South Wales in 1987. And I remember as a junior assistant analyst writing research reports in the six months leading up to the October crash, um, you know, thinking this didn't make any sense to me, but people were explaining why it was different this time and so forth. So that was a that was a very formative time. I um, I was a relatively late starter in, into the investment game at the age of, of 27, and uh, I like to call myself the original millennial. And I uh, had had lots of lots of jobs. I actually started out of university, a graduate marketing job at 3M and uh, lasted there about three months, decided I wasn't good for the, uh, the marketing uh, career path. And, uh, but uh, we subsequently uh, bought the company in one of our global funds. So I like to say, I sort of couldn't, couldn't make it at 3M, but uh, we, we owned the company. Um, but I, I had a, uh, some of the things that really, really sort of impacted me along the journey that have really shaped my and our investment philosophy firstly came from a a relatively well well healed family in in New Zealand called F Cooper Seeds. It was an unlisted um, but public public company, and that company was started in 1830 and uh, started off as an importer of seeds, um, then turned in, into a agriculture growing 
the actual seeds in fertile New Zealand and became an exporter with offices in South Africa and, and uh, London. And by 1960, there was a great, great celebration, um, 100, 100 plus years of um, successful enterprise and built up a very large corporation, high rise building, head office in downtown Wellington. And then by um, my father left that business under strange circumstances, came to, came to Australia uh, penniless, as they, they say, but that, that business was all over Red Rover by the late 1960s. And I'll tell that story because it runs quite deeply in, I guess, my family's history about first generation makes it, second generation kind of maintains, and in the third generation, um, you know what happens. So creation, maintenance, destruction story. And it's very, very uh, meaningful in the investment game where you see that phenomena, not only in the founder companies, which I'll talk a bit about later on, sort of love investing in these sort of sort of very driven, founder-oriented companies, but there's definitely a cycle. And that cycle has been very influential on me personally. Uh, my father was a small business guy and uh, we were in, so I spent my junior, junior years in, uh, living in a hotel in outback Northern Territory and um, you know once again saw a lot of cycles and how that impacted upon small business back then. There was an iron ore mine just down the road from us which was great in the boom times and not so good in the in the bad times. So that that experience to sort of family business, the ebbs and flows and the risks and the opportunities and the high-fiving when the when the you know the kind of the economy's good and the depression and impact it has upon small business has been very, very influential and has built up this sort of, I guess, DNA in our, in our firm of now 50 people around what we call the sort of hubris, the humility cycle. Um, I can talk a little bit more about that, you know, in terms of the firm's philosophy. The other thing that was, <clears throat> I had a job for um, 18 months at the University of New England as a researcher and I was a um, based in Arbordale, New South Wales University there and it was a for-profit research consulting business to small business associations like the Hardware Association and even, even the Accounting Association, analysing sort of SMEs um, back in the days we're doing financial analysis, trying to identify the qualities of successful uh, firm participants in an industry and then we would haul them all up to Armadale for a sort of week in, in residential um, you know, management training and going through the numbers. But the most exciting thing about that for me was not so much the number crunching, because that kind of showed you the obvious, the better performers had better sales margins returns. What was insightful and meaningful for my investing career was some of the human qualities of the successful businesses. And so when, you know, you get 20 sort of hardware store owners together <clears throat> and, you know, swapping stories and insights, it was really the human capital um, energy and competence and attention um, that really differentiated the successful ones from the from the average. And so we at um, CI really spent a lot of time in the, what I'd call qualitative research. Mm -hmm. Quantitative is really important, um, but I reckon the juicy juicy insights to industry for us and the way we do it, um, in spite of big data and AI, we'll talk about that you know, more, which big believers in all, all of that sort of analytical components. But for us, it's really, you know, leading with qualitative research, building building networks, and it's tacit knowledge, the knowledge that can't be transferred through, you know, zeros and ones and sort of uh, 
computers that really excite us as uh, as investors. I um, I had a couple of really big, um, I guess, meaningful experiences as a as a junior investor over my my career. I worked for three three global organisations, which was fantastic. Um, Bank National left the public sector and joined Bank National to Paris here in in Sydney. Um, as you may know, BNP is Australia's oldest foreign bank. They came here back in the 1860s, I think, as finances to the wool and gold booms. And um, I, uh, I sort of thinking I was leaving the public sector of New South Wales to join the, the, the free markets and found, um, you know, Bank National de Pre at the time were, were French owned, a bank and government owned. <laughs> and so it was a sort of a backward uh, feeling for me initially, because it was, you know, very, very interesting company. They, um, had a great tradition about you know, expensive red wine lunches and they had French classes internally here in Castle Race Street. I remember I did work um, experience there in did, 1989 or Did you? Okay, well, yeah. it was sort of similar. Options similar. trading, I was doing wow. work experience on, yeah. learn about So did you do the French classes? <laughs> I didn't do those. <laughs> they were um, uh, semi-compulsory to, to get ahead there. But that, you know, like that, that gave me a little bit of experience to foreign cultures moved to Melbourne to uh, join Potter Warburg Asset Management. They were taken over by Mercury, which was a large UK investment manager, part of the, uh, part of the uh, UBS, um, was basically the asset manager for, for UBS back then. And then Mercury was taken over by Merrill Lynch. So I had, you know, it was really wonderful, the sort of the, the, the Melbourne-based Potter um, organisation experience. I then had the English experience. Um, I, I described that as basically iron fist velvet glove culture, um, very different from the roaring bulls at Merrill Lynch, uh, which was very much about, you know, setting setting ambitious targets and crashing or crash through. In the end, for Merrill's, it was a crash out. Um, so I, uh, I guess I had, you know, really terrific exposures to different cultures and different experiences in these global organisations. Very meaningful because you know, I always sort of harboured um, ambitions around, you know, having an investment management firm that could apply a philosophy to different different opportunities around the world. Well, so at State Super, in fact, I had the opportunity to travel uh, overseas. Um, I actually applied for a job at Berkshire Hathaway and, um, uh, sorry, I wrote in for a job. There was no ad in the paper. Um, didn't get any response, so I kind of rang, rang uh, the... The office in Los Angeles, where Charles Munger um, lives and, and and operated at, and I was quite surprised his uh, EA took my call, and, uh, and they rang back and said they'd take a meeting. So, oh, gee, this is going to be interesting. So, Charlie Munger invited me along to the Californian Club, and it was just just after they made the um, the big foray into Wells Fargo, and so I just had a you know an incredible two hours with you know what I would consider you know, an equivalent to Warren Buffett in terms of his wisdom and so forth. And I should say, you know, for me, you know, books and, and uh, you know, in terms of mentors, you know, I've worked with some really, really clever people and learnt, learnt lots. But the, my, my favourite sort of learnings, I guess, have been from others through written material. I think it's just amazing how much free information there is out there in the marketplace in terms of modelling yourself on... Um, you know, really amazing intellects and people with incredible investment acumen. So I've been somebody who's, you know, tried to piece 
together or integrate my own personality strengths and weaknesses with other other people's experiences and you know Charles Munger would be definitely one of those one of those type of mentors and I'll never never forget him saying to me when he sort of asked me what what I do and so forth and him saying we're, we're in completely different businesses you and I and I was a bit surprised by that I was thinking I was in the investment business he was in the investment business we had something in common um, but he he made the point that he was really operating in a private capital um, private equity model closed-end money um, you know permanent permanent endowment styled funds where I was sort of basically an agent you know in a public sector job where a lot of uh, sort of agency um, issues to grapple with I didn't quite understand exactly what he was on about but I do now um, it's a you know it's a different different format when you have closed-end uh, permanent capital to to uh, open-ended funds but I, you know out of my career really tried to take some of those disciplines of proprietorial investing into shaping that into what the uh, the business is is today at Cooper investors so uh, anyway, that's a bit of a, a around the grounds on what's been uh, influential for me, and it's continuing to be a, uh, I guess, a, a progressive dance, David, in terms of developing and the, the nuances. And you know, every every time I sort of think I've finally you know finished my learning phases, I get a new new lesson, and the latest COVID's you know yet another example of you know. This time is different with a you know with a with a little twist to it each time. So haven't haven't run run the portfolios through pandemics before, but yeah, now we have. So you've referenced. Thanks for that. It's been a wonderful introduction, and congratulations on such a great career to date. Um, you've referenced CI or Cooper Investors a couple of times there, and you've also referenced and emphasised, I think, an investment philosophy. So I think it's a great point to explain what Cooper Investors is, who it is, what it seeks to do, and, and what are some of its main major investment philosophies. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I left, left uh, Merrill Lynch in 2001, mm -hmm. um, a couple of weeks before September 11, and uh, was thinking, you know, after September 11, this was a really bad idea to start a, start a business. But look, it's actually a good, good time in uh, volatile times to sort of cut your teeth in a startup business, get you really, really focused. I tried to distill in in the thinking of starting Cooper Investors um, all of the, the good things that I'd learnt from these global firms that I've referenced and leave behind some of the some of the less um, less favorable or sort of institutional um, characteristics that are somewhat challenging for a you know investment Puritan um, what are some trying. of those structural things? I think agency, you know, having multiple, um, having bosses in faraway lands um, was one of the reasons. I just got, you know, tired of late night calls and I guess different, different, um, I guess different values around what was important, what was not. I remember, and this is not a criticism of any of these, these firms, as I said, I've, you know, very humbled and uh, grateful for what I was able to experience in really big quality um, investment management businesses, but you know, I'll give you an example. Um, you know, in, in terms of Merrill Lynch, I'll never forget the phone call um, in the early two thousands. Um, was effectively dropped. You know, this is an old Jack Walsh one liner. You know, you know, having a difficult time here in New York. Drop the bottom ten. I said, what do you what do you mean? Drop the bottom ten. Drop the bottom ten percent of staff. You know, we need to cut cut costs out of it. 
And Merrill's um, was very much an investment banking culture with a with an asset management arm, whereas Mercury was just an asset management. And for those in the audience who don't really understand the different cultures there, you know, traditional investment banking, very short cycle <clears throat> um, business where they scale up, scale down, very project orientated. Investment management, it's all about stability. It's all about relationships with companies and clients. And so chopping and changing um, cost base and particularly people being a people business disastrous and that wasn't I don't think fully appreciated by the phone caller around dropping the bottom bottom 10 we were actually doing quite well in Australia it was New York was having the you know the global part was having the problem so that just that mismatch in cultures um, having owners of a business in in different jurisdictions and it's a huge global thematic by the way this idea of localism a slightly different point around what I'm talking about here but you know having producers and consumers aligned um, having their interests um, sort of integrated is a you know a really big big issue in the consumer consumer space these days and so investment management for me was very much about self-determination and being focused in on investors and you know our clients and you know, all decisions really should be made and aligned to, well, what, what's good for a long-term investor? Um, I always remember, just a quick quick digression here, John Cloney, in fact, in the name Cooper Investors, the word, it's not investment management, it's not asset management, it's investors. And it was John Cloney just up the road here mm -hmm. um, in uh, Castle Road Street. I was walking past the, the building today reminiscing, you know, when I was at State Super, we owned Roughly ten percent of QBE back then, um, in the better better era of QBE, and um, he, he always used to have a go at me. You know, all you guys come in here with your asset management, investment manager. What? Why is it just you know about investing? Um, so that was kind of the, the origins of of the word investors. And so, Cooper Investors was started with the idea: just take the best of the experiences that we, and not not just myself, Andrew Swan and Steve Thompson, the other senior principals at, at Cooper Investors. We have, by the way, 13 owners, um, employees, 100% owner firm. And so um, there's no outside equity and um, never say never, but the rolling rolling brief from myself is we want to stay an employee-owned firm with one condition, and that is the um, partners and equity owners of the business live up to the expectations of world-class best practice. And so, you know, reinvention, investing in the business, developing, you know, I guess, investment uh, skills and, and talent internally. Before I started Cooper Investors, I did a little tour of America of all these sort of boutique businesses. And, uh, you know, one of, one of the lessons that came out of that was this idea, where, where do these businesses fail? Well, they fail when the uh, original owners and the founders hang on too long, don't give away enough equity and don't re rejuvenate and so you know retaining and developing talent and we've had our our ups and downs on that you know it's not not easy in a talent-based business but very focused in on you know handing the keys to uh, the next generation has been a big big part of it and this idea of self-determination we just don't want to be pushed around by external owners wanting to hit specific targets or asset growth strategies we we are somewhat differentiated, David, in the fact that we only do one thing and one thing only. We only have one investment philosophy. We haven't bought any teams or people. Everything's been 
sort of homegrown and developed. We've we've hired people with great great experiences, but they've been inculcated in the the CI way. And I'll talk a little bit about that investment philosophy in a moment. So, even though we've got seven funds, the approach is exactly the same, whether it be Asian, European. Um, it, this founders fund that we've we've launched, Global Founders Fund. So, we've taken the philosophy and. I guess, if you like, um, nuanced it and purposed it towards these different different capital pools. And what what's the, the critical aspect of that? We've standardised things like the way we value companies, the criteria around risk in companies. We've used this acronym called VOF, Value Latency, Operating and Industry Trends and Focus Management Behaviour. And underneath that, there's you know roughly 35 different indicators, check checklists. In other words. What is it we're looking for in in companies? So we've standardised that across the way we invest, and then from that standardisation, the, the strategy is really to integrate these teams. Even though the capital pools, you know, the North Americans and the Asian, are run by these small teams, we are actually able to integrate information, transfer, and transcend information across teams. And we've got so many talking to one of our, um, Chow Ma the other day runs our Asian fund, talking about a company called Apollo in India. Um, it's a, you know, the largest private hospital operator, largest pathology company now. As you may be aware, Australia's got the largest private hospital company outside of North America, and we have the largest pathology company outside of America in Sonic, it's Ramsey and Sonic. Mm-hmm. So there's just tremendous knowledge as we've built an integrated system that we can then kind of pivot at different domain expertises or different sort of sectors of the economy to understand what's going on across different jurisdictions. And it's taken, I mean, I borrowed this idea effectively from um, Mercury and, and Merrill's where I was subjected to the global McKinsey team, which Mercury f- flew into Australia, 10 of these blokes, young, young hipsters with propellers sort of slicing and dicing what we were doing here. And I remember having a bit of a bit of an argument um, with them, which was not wise because they're much smarter than I was, um, around what makes a, a good investment management business. My beef with them, they, they said there's 13 things that run make a successful, um, or 13 factors that make a successful investment management business. And I'll never forget it. You know, they said that performance was number 10 on the list. You know, it was all about brand and you know, all these other systems, process, governance, blah, blah, blah. I was a performance guy, so I took exception to that. And we had a long discussion about their somewhat skew-if analytics uh, and proof statements. Anyway, we can go into that later on. But um, you know, I think I think what, what I'm saying is this idea of standardisation and um, being able to pivot information into domains where you can make money has taken you know little, literally 20 years for us to work out what does that really, really mean? Because you know, we're, we're investing globally, um, but the, you know, one of the secret tricks here, David, is that we've really reduced the number of companies. We can't possibly go deep on you know, 13,000 listed companies or 30,000 listed companies out there. We, we're really only tracking 400 companies and there's linkages between these companies um, you know, we've, we've invested, been big backers of the Reese and the Wilson family here in Australia as a proprietorial family linked company. Um, you know, as a result of that work, we've sort of, you know, pyramided, if you like, into a, into a global equ- 
equivalent called Ferguson's. And uh, you know, just through that knowledge, we can compare and contrast and develop these systems of observation and understanding these, these different industries. So I'm really excited about that. It's taken a long time, a lot of, lot of scars on the back, working out how to apply this in jurisdictions like India and China and Asia, um, North America, um, you know, all the way up to sort of Scandinavia, which all of these places have different, different flavours and nuances that take time to work out. But you know, I think we're getting there. And uh, of those seven funds, what sort of assets under management roughly are we talking about? So we've got 12, 12 billion under management and that'd be split three and a half billion in the global funds. So there's a couple yes. of different global funds and um, the rest would be in Australian equities across, we've got endowment funds, obviously equity funds, and we've got a, something called the Brunswick Fund, which is a hybrid between domestic and international investing. Um, so yeah, and the, the growth of the business is definitely, we've closed a number of our funds to new new clients. We, other thing I should say about our approach is, you know, we, we really think about the capacity of each of our strategies and we don't want to go anywhere near kind of maximising that out. So we've, we've tended to close funds, such as the Founders Fund, um, the Brunswick Fund's closed, the Aussie Equities is closed to, you know, sort of larger clients. So, yeah, I think, I mean, as you know, liquidity's been huge. I grew up in, in an era, and, and I do wonder if I'm getting a bit old sometimes, David, because it just seems to be a new monetary system that I don't, totally understand, um, but I grew up in the days of the 87 crash and the number of uh, kind of hiccups along the way, the Asian crash, the bond crisis, which there was one back in the, I think about 1996 bonds went from six and a half back to, I think about 10 and a half percent, which horrendous. Um, I remember thinking back there on, um, you know, the funds that I was exposed to and, you know, liquidity involved in a couple of small cap funds over over the you know, last three decades. You know, you get into small cap land and liquidity crisis and redemptions, it's really ugly. We can talk about some of those examples. But look, that doesn't seem to apply anymore in the last, you know, last oh, 10, wait. 15 years has been yeah, I somewhat did different. I did notice that you emphasised that this time is different and I'm sort of uh, old enough and have managed clients through the, the, the tech wreck and I can remember people saying, oh, no, no. You're using a price earnings multiple, it's not right. It's about you know users and uh, you know other metrics to support the investment thesis, and uh, that, those words make me very very scared. Yeah. Um, in, in terms of the clients of the business, uh, are they wholesale, institutional, retail? <clears throat> we started out as a um, you know as a child of Paul Keating, as, as he reminded me, um, in, in effectively um, industry fund clients, jo John mm -hmm. Nolan. Um, was a very early backer, as he, he did with many other successful fund managers, including my former partner, David Paradise. So very, very uh, grateful for his early support and, and the industry fund movement. And, you know, I guess in the last sort of five years, we've, we've really, um, you know, now gathered very significant uh, client base in what I'd call the endowment and family office and foundation space. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, we've yeah, we've got a I think roughly two billion dollars now in that that sort of clientele, and it's very different than we, we really like the diversity because it's a very different um, kind of heartbeat to those sort of clients um, than than industry funds. Um, the industry funds are, are really terrific in 
you know, big quality clients. The I like to say we're running a uh, sort of industrial Swiss Swiss quality um, format at CI with, with systems and processes and audits. Um, you know, we've we're just always, I guess, under quality control um, from from these bigger clients, which has made us a much better organisation. So that's that's really been beneficial. I think um, you know we've had a couple of inquiries out of the um, endowment space in in the US, which is something that we'd be keen to pursue over time. And tell me about the philosophy and the investment philosophy philosophy of the firm. Yeah, so we we um, use this idea that what, what we're seeking is risk adjusted value latency, um, and I use this term. I can hear the listeners say, "What does that mean?" Yeah, well, we, we've got. So we're looking for value and latency, I guess, in, in uh, different parlance would be, you know, the difference between price and, and value. But latency is much deeper than that for us. You know, we're looking for operational latency, companies that are running with a margin of safety around, you know, the, the way they run risk in their, in their business model, um, financial latency. So we, we would prefer, and I've you know, many discussions with people who, you know, you know look, looking for optimal balance sheet. Um, you know, quite quite a lot of other investors like you know capital returns and bigger dividends and kind of using the balance sheet capacity to give those you know returns back to um, you know to the investors. Our our perspective is we're looking for companies that can use that balance sheet latency um, at specific times when value is on offer. So you know we're looking for these companies that have a slightly different. Um, view of risk than the normal institutional companies. We're looking for these proprietorial factors in in companies where there's really deep domain knowledge and experiences. And I do compare with I'll use BHP as an example. Really love um, you know these aggre- sort of privately proprietorial companies that you know get aggressive when when opportunities on offer, and they get very conservative when risks risk is apparent. And institutional companies. Um, average ones, at least, tend to do the opposite. You know, use BHP and Rio Tinto during, you know, the last downturn. They couldn't spend enough money at the top of the you know 150-year commodity cycle, um, but at the, you know, when it all tipped over, they spent. They could have bought the whole global mining industry, and they spent nothing. Um, and so there's something going on in those boardrooms. I think BHP's fixed themselves up under the very good sort of chairmanship of of Ken McKenzie. Um, they're really a, a reform company around this sort of risk-adjusted capital capital allocation model. So it's an old example, um, but it's funny. Something funny happens in these boardrooms because it, you know when the commodity prices are really high, any anyone can see that they're spending as much money as they can. So there's something really strange about human behaviour, and it is this this behaviour in companies and behaviour in industries that we're extremely wary of. Um, so. What we're trying to do is risk adjust, you know, the return expectations in accordance with what we see in industries and the companies to sort of push the capital towards these risk adjusted. And we use the lens, you know, using the operating model, um, which picks up the sort of financial attributes of companies, the cash flow attributes of companies. Um, Industry is very, very industry interesting. You see sort of common behaviour. You know, in the insurance industry, going back time um, after after the insurance industry is being hurt by catastrophes and losses, they all start to get more disciplined, and that's a really positive sign 
for us to put our money in and, and follow their sort of more conservative decision making. Um, we, in terms of the philosophy, as I said before, we're qualitative and qual, qual, qualitative and quantitative. So we're doing 1,500 company visits a year across these 400 companies that I mentioned. And the information coming off of that is sort of put through this standardized process. Um, and uh, we, we also categorize companies into what we call subsets of value. And the subsets of value you know, can be broadly described as compounding type styles. We call, you know, there's like archetypes, if you like, growth companies, um, stalwart companies that sort of compound out returns. Reversionary style um, companies, these would be the low risk turnarounds. And you know, like I emphasize, we don't think many turnarounds actually work. So we like to quarantine, just looking for the low risk and quality component. Um, and there's these kind of, I guess, uh, real asset, real income, endowment styled um, securities, we call them asset plays and bond-like equities. And so each of those companies have different characteristics that we're looking for. And, you know, we're really trying to quarantine that sort of low risk source of, of returns in each, each of those. But what we really love about that, that also, that categorization is they have different cycles. And when you blend those cycles together, I think it does explain somewhat the fact that we've all of our funds have outperformed since inception. Um, we do go through underperforming periods, but we've managed to take this philosophy into all of these different jurisdictions successfully. And it's really putting together in a balanced way that sort of gives us that what I'd call enduring quality um, that allows us to you know, sort of weather the, the downturns. And typically in our portfolios, they um, tend to, to match up markets. Um, we struggle a little bit in the, you know, in the last three to six months, we've struggled a little bit to, to stay up with markets, but we, you know, we think we've done a pretty good job. And then we pick up a lot of return in these down, down dips, whether they be sort of down months or, you know, in these sort of big, big down dips, like I've had three in my career, you know, 40% returns. We've been able to really pick up a lot of relative returns and the magic of compounding of higher bases is just beautiful. Um, and so we've really built that into our investment philosophy and we've gone one step further and built that into a, what we call our endowment funds, um, you know, specifically designed for, I guess, you know, people who want to, you know, sort of a steadier, steadier return profile, they value downside protection more than just the upside participation. So we've got these a global endowment fund and a domestic one that really sort of goes, t takes the investment style that we've built and really accentuates that in, into, into the fund and the diversity in the way we've built the portfolio through portfolio construction. And we've stripped out, you know, any any of these turnaround stocks or any, mm -hmm. you know, sort of companies with full fully leveraged balance sheets. We just sort of give them a wide berth and we've built it that way. How do you determine the 400 companies that you research and how often does that change? Yeah, it's a, it's um, you, we're constantly renewing. Um, we take the idea of adjacent competencies. Um, so you know, we initially did a lot of, I guess, compare and contrast with Australian companies, a lot of quantitative screening of, of markets out there going back you know, 15, 15 years. Um, that's how we started. Um, from there, it's been just really what I'd call referral, <clears throat> taking, in fact, some of our best ideas. And it is a, you know, really 
really fantastic now. We've got you know 15 years now of uh, visiting these companies, doing the shoe leather stuff, um, 1,500 company visits a year, and our, our thing is repeat, repeat, repeat. So just keep on going back, even if we're not invested, um, once they meet our quality. And so these companies are some of the best companies in the, in the world in their niches. Um, companies like Danaher, you know, in the big, big health healthcare sector, industrial um, company in the US started off in our portfolio 10 years ago as a $30 billion company. I think it's a couple hundred billion dollars today and they've done spin-offs. And so, you know, spin-offs have been a, a really big part of our um, investing. Um, these companies all have competitors, big, big cap competitors and small cap competitors. And so there's a steady stream now of new ideas coming off the existing base. And I facetiously, <clears throat> um, bit of a bit of a comeback on my previous comment about McKinsey's, you know, we don't need McKinsey's because we've got their clients. Um, some of these companies, uh, and I'd call it follow the money strategy by us, you know, they are just exceptional companies in big global niche markets. And they are just, just full of wisdom points around um, trends about regulatory changes, about industry pressures and opportunities, and most of all, we use this um, under our philosophy, a sort of a research approach we call observation, not prediction, which is kind of code for a scientific method of actually see what people are doing and not what they're talking about. And mm -hmm. so, if you track and analyse the uh, hundreds of billions of dollars of capital expenditure that the companies, we're invested in 170 companies, we're tracking 400 companies, and we're analysing inward, and this is the other trick of our business, David, is that we've, we've now going inwards. We're studying more and more deeply where are these companies spending their money, where is their R&D department pointed, um, because that's where the clues are in terms of, I guess, where, you know, where the next, next trends are, are unfolding. Um, and whilst a lot of those are probably obvious in, in some respects. It's the, you know, I guess the deep insights we're getting from these companies that give us confidence. I think investing is a confidence game. And um, yeah, so we, we're really enjoying that, that sort of relationship with these global companies. What are some of the big trends that you see are on the horizon and what are some of the trends you're trying to harness and what's, what are some of the trends you're trying to avoid? Yeah, <clears throat> well, we don't, start, starting with the avoidance, um, you know, what as important as China and and Joe Biden's, uh, you know, sort of uh, recalibration of, of the, uh, the US economy is, we just don't want to get caught up in that. We're going to be following companies and industries very, very closely from a dot, you know, bottom up and industry perspective. Um, our, our belief in our investment philosophy is that equity markets is a great place to be, very flexible, uh, great track record in terms of recovering from, from downturns. Um, I think in terms of, you know, our, our perspective increasingly, you know, is finding and backing business for creative solutions through technology to, you know, big, big global problems, because where you've got problems, you've got solutions and you've got money-making, you know, pockets of money-making opportunities. So in, in healthcare and environment, in um, you know better better use of, of property, you know we're invested in a company called Colliers, which we'll be familiar with. It's not a real estate agent. Um, you know two thirds of their business are coming out of annuity streams. They spun off a, 
company called FinServe, I think it was, big asset management business in, in the US, you know, around optimizing and managing, you know, property, which um, these days has become incredibly sophisticated in terms of optimization of, you know, power, water, um, you know, uh, occupancy costs for big, big corporations around the world. So there's lots of opportunities in, in that space. We, um, <clears throat> we sort of see cut, cut the world up in a, in a couple of different ways, but you know one, one way is you look at the you know, somewhat all-pervasiveness of government in industry. Some would say overreach, but um, you know, the impact of government policy, not to mention you know, the cost of, of uh, money, um, is just profound in what it's doing to, to industry. And so we sort of rule a line down the middle of the page and think about companies as beneficiaries of, of governments and, and losers. Um, that's kind of where we start our, our exercise of thinking about the world. And if you think about, you know, the local example in Macquarie Bank um, is clearly on the winner. You know, they've just par excellence, world's best around, you know, taking government policy, you know, green energy would be their latest latest one, um, and finding low risk ways to slice and dice the, the risk return pie and make sure that um, Macquarie shareholders are on the right side of, of the page. The other one is, you know, what I'd call new economy. Um, you know, finding different different ways through technology and so forth. Now, we're not in VC or new technology. That's not our area of interest because we don't have the skill sets. But in, you know, most of our companies, there's quite a lot of technology buried away. These are what I'd call traditional industrial-style companies um, with big, big deep uh, research departments. I mentioned 3M earlier. They're, they're you know, they've been going for... 100 years is a really innovative company. So we've got lots of companies like that in the global arena, global champions in Australia, CSL, Macquarie Bank, and you know, lots of smaller cap companies that you know, are highly innovative. And then lastly, this, this phenomena around, um, rather than talking about ESG, you know, sort of communities and connection and state, stakeholder, deep domain expertise in understanding um, all of the stakeholders and how they interface and, and work and, and finding companies that kind of get it, so the uh, some of the parts or the whole is greater than some of the parts. And so, you know, local examples of that would be companies like Ryman Healthcare is a very very fantastic company in the aged care um, retirement end, and they they understand that industry and the you know the I guess the decision chain um, from design, own, operate. Um, you know, down to the relatives of, of people moving into these homes so well and so much better than most of the, you know, sort of corporate models that I've seen. And so when you get that, when you get that relationship between customer, uh, employee, uh, shareholder and, you know, the social license to operate, when you get that right, it's just a gold mine, And it's really hard to get right. And I think we've, you know, put a lot of lens around that sort of, company, which is, um, you know, there'd be the main freights um, of the world, there's technology companies in Canada, Constellation Software would be one, um, some of these big European family companies, control companies, we're really, really excited about some of the opportunities in, in that space because they bring a real difference around this stakeholder management. Now you've put, you're in the market uh, and started this Founders and Family Fund, if I'm right? Yep. What do you find attractive about those types of businesses 
that makes you want to have a fund that specifically focuses on them? It, it came out of, you know, the idea really came out of the likes of um, the uh, Salt Pats and Brickworks and the Ryman's, um, uh, the Reese's, um, where, you know, over many years of going visiting these companies, it just had a different, I guess, flavour that could be summarised as soul in the game. So a lot of people talk about the skin in the game, which is the financial kind of wiring companies up and management's up to the financial um, benefits of running long-term strategies. But the thing that really for, for us is the cream on the cake is the soul in the grain. That's the emotional commitment of these companies to go the extra yards and the nuanced, I guess, insights they have into their industries where you know the average professionally managed company it's just not as good because they're moving around management teams as you you know average tenure now of CEOs is down at under five years I mean you can't run long-term strategies um, they have you know short-term incentives um, even the long-term incentives only running to three to five years so we just don't think you can get there on some of these long-term industry strategies without that longer longer term sort of commitment that goes beyond financial benefit as well um, so they tend to be, the ones we're investing in, they tend to be kind of more conservative during these times and more aggressive when value's on, on offer. They, they're happy to spend money for no short-term result, you know, no quarterly returns, even 12, you know, one to two years. They will spend the money if it's the right thing to do more often than not. So, yeah, I think... Sounds like alignment of interest uh, is really important. Yeah. Yeah, and it's easy to easy to say, you know, look, all, all companies say that, David, you know, they've got these, you know, management consultants who come in and wire up incentive programs, but, um, you know, it's it's the stability of, of management. So it's another another one that really stands out in these good good companies. You know, the you know these CEOs, not only the CEOs, but the C-suite have been around for, you know, decades. Um, and whilst they're, you know, constantly renewing themselves, having that sort of consistency over time um, helps what we call pattern recognition, which is a big part of our, I guess, investment philosophy as well. When you follow and repeat and have long-term investment strategy, you get to see things and you think have seen that sort of type of behavior before, you can categorize it and then you can manage the, the risk and return attribution. I think these companies that we're investing in, these founder and family link companies have this same attribution. They've seen these cycles before. They know what they're doing. And during COVID, um, and this is a complete generalisation, but these sort of family-driven companies, they're, they're just very fast to the ball in terms of you know adjusting um, cost bases, investing where they need to be, cutting back where they need to be. They know what they're doing, you know, before you know these things hit, or you know, co coincidentally as as they need to, much faster than others. Are more bureaucratic, more reliant upon external advisors coming in. Um, yeah, so they you know, we, we love them. Um, we also, be fair to say, you know, as a employee owned firm, we've learned so much from studying, you know, the, the word CI way, which we use to describe our investment philosophy, has actually been borrowed off these companies. So I can tell you, um, you know, some of our own philosophies about, you know, how to manage the business, how to be put in these sort of um, latencies into the business because we as, you know, we, in a way, we're like a farming business. You know, these markets go up and down and everyone gets worried and 
rushes from one side of the boat to the other. So we've got sort of strategies at, at CI to sort of mitigate that. We just want to be really steady, um, love downturns. Um, it's a bit painful for our clients, of course, and, and us as co-investors in the fund. But, you know, it's during those downturns you get the real, the really good opportunities. Terrific. Peter, uh, it's been fantastic. Um, in summing up, would there be any uh, advice that you'd have to listeners and the average retail or wholesale or high net worth individual that's listening and, and that you would, you would pass on as standout advice given your long career and expertise in the industry? Um, given, given that your clients... Uh, I, I've read a couple of interesting books recently. One, one was... Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Stephen Covey. He became famous sure. about you know, Seven Habits seven of habits. Successful People, which I haven't actually read. Um, but he's actually written a better book, I reckon, on um, Seven Habits of Highly Successful Families. And it's basically a repurposed book, but I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And it has a lot of value in terms of investment strategy. And I think it's something um, I really believe in, that is have, have a really clear um, and well thought through expectation and strategy as to what you want to do. And perhaps that's why um, your clients need you know, yourselves in terms of CODA. Um, because what I've noticed, um, and this is true, if you analyze the best fund managers, this is a US study, you'll find that, uh, and this was done on the Magellan, the US Magellan Fund under Peter Lynch, who was a big, big fan of and modeled some of my own thinking of, of his success. Even in that fund, the average investor didn't outperform. It's because they came in late and sold, mm -hmm. you know, sold dips, sure. right? And it's a really bad phenomenon. The opposite of what they tell you they're going to do. It, exactly. And so the one standout thing, whether you're picking stocks or investing in other fund managers, is to be really clear as to what the expectations are um, because I think a lot of the rush to, um, yes, the private equity and unlisted space and venture capital is something I'm, I'm also very interested in. Um, but one of the benefits for that, that sort of market is that when you put your money in, you can't get it out. It's illiquid. <clears throat> it's illiquid. And the illiquidity... Is a favour. Uh, people talk about the illi sure. illiquidity premium, but I think the big premium mm. people don't talk about is that you can't, you can't change your mind under stress. Yeah. And so that's... That's something that we've tried to, in public markets, screening out the noise, not being influenced by, you know, every Tom, Dick and Harry who's got an opinion. I've had so many calls at the bottom of the market. I remember having a call from, a, I won't mention his name, you know, some in, you know insider informed in one of these big investment banks. I've just, you know, contacted my, my man inside of the Fed, you know, that the system is frozen up. I'll never forget that. That was at the bottom of the GFC, right? And, you know, so what do you do with a piece of information like that? Well, you know, you, you go and sell all your stocks. Well, of course, that was the bottom of the market. Great time to buy. Yeah. So I guess, uh, you know, get, getting good advice and being clear on, on expectations and taking a, a long-term a long view. Peter, I, tell, I told a fib. It wasn't my last question. I, there's one thing I, I see here on my notes that I, I really have to ask, and this is probably more on a personal thing, so people in the audience, hopefully they can indulge me with it. Now, in reading and researching and preparing for this, of course, I read and came across, you know, the, the $10 billion hippie and some of these articles and came across quite a strong side of you that seems to be related to mindfulness, etc. Tell us about that part of you and how that's influenced you as an investor. <coughs> well, um, the fire, it's a good question. No one's ever asked me um, this in this 
quite foreign, but the we've got five attributes um, that describe our principles and and values. Um, could be described as the, the the culture of humility around sort of gratitude, intentionality, curiosity, being present in the moment, being authentic. And I know some of those words are mm-hmm. a little bit um, passe, I guess, but we deeply live them at, at CI. And you know, I I think in terms of you know, what makes a successful investor temperament um, is certainly intelligence, high energy, um, integrity, um, but temperament is a really big one. And, you know, I've, I've used, you know, effectively Vedic, Vedic techniques, you know, breathing techniques and yoga techniques to, I guess, manage my, uh, my volatilities, stresses and anxieties. And, you know, I, I can uh, share with you in terms of performance anxiety, you know, in a in a previous, much less these days, David, but in previous days, you know, you get these league tables out as a, you know, you, when, when I took over the imputation fund for Potter Warburg Asset Management, you know, the performance when I took over was, was terrible. And, you know, you're looking at these monthly surveys and rankings, it is so stressful. And, um, you know, I uh, kind of learnt through meditation and yoga and breathing, that that was a really fantastic way of me of sort of realizing, well, you know, we can't we can't really change things that happen to us, but we can certainly manage and I guess turn to advantage in a way how we think about things. And so managing managing the mind is something that I've been really really fascinated with and observed in the more successful people. This equanimity and kind of calmness under stressful positions and um, uh, really, really have benefited magnificently, if you like, out of that, that ability to say centred um, and somewhat somewhat rational. And I think people do it in different different ways. And so I've spent a lot of time and I have a, a wonderful partner in Sapana Basin who, who shares this passion. In fact, she's been a inspiration for me. And so, you know, in our philanthropic Areas we've spent a lot of lot of time and money in, in terms of supporting the these sort of organisations that then get taken into you know mental health into prison reforms into into schools. Um, in terms of investing, I can tell you um, without without question um, the study of of self and self awareness is just fantastic because as I said before the qualitative side of this is really reading behaviour um, of the ability of people to sort of hold the line, be long-term, be consistent. And as you know, in business, it's not easy. There's pressures everywhere. And it's those who can sort of concentrate on the 80-20, you know, what, what makes a difference, um, what you can control, um, and really drop the, the worry, the anxiety, the stresses. And so, you know, in the better managers, you really observe um, this this quality. So I'm a big, big fan of, uh, you know, sort of non non-medical uh, uh, ways to you know, calm and center the mind. Terrific, it's a great place to leave it. Thanks for joining us at Inside the Rope, Peter. Thanks, David. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com.
Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.